A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 48. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 16. Abu Simbel, Part 3. Like Homer, too, the artist of the battle-piece is careful to point out the distinguishing traits of the various combatants. The Kedda go three in a chariot, the Egyptians only two. The Kedda wear a moustache and a scalp-lock. The Egyptians pride themselves on a clean shave and cover their bare heads with ponderous wigs. The Sardinian contingent cultivate their own thick hair, whiskers, and mustachios, and their features are distinctly European. They also wear the curious helmet, surmounted by a ball and two spikes, by which they may always be recognized in the sculptures. These Sardinians appear only in the border frieze next to the floor. The sand had drifted up just at that point, and only the top of one fantastic helmet was visible above the surface. Not knowing in the least to what this might belong, we set the men to scrape away the sand, and so quite by accident uncovered the most curious and interesting group in the whole picture. The Sardinians, in Egyptian, Shardana, seem to have been naturalized prisoners of war drafted into the ranks of the Egyptian army, and are the first European people whose name appears on the monuments. There is but one hour in the twenty-four at which it is possible to form any idea of the general effect of this vast subject, and that is at sunrise. Then only does the pure day stream in through the doorway and temper the gloom of the side aisles with light reflected from the sunlit floor. The broad divisions of the picture and the distribution of the masses may then be dimly seen. The details, however, require candlelight, and can only be studied a few inches at a time. Even so, it is difficult to make out the upper groups without the help of a ladder. Salome, mounted on a chair and provided with two long sticks lashed together, could barely hold his little torch high enough to enable the writer to copy the inscription on the middle tower of the fortress of Kadesh. It is fine to see the sunrise on the front of the great temple, but something still finer takes place on certain mornings of the year in the very heart of the mountain. As the sun comes up above the eastern hilltops, one long, level beam strikes through the doorway, pierces the inner darkness like an arrow, penetrates to the sanctuary, and falls like fire from heaven upon the altar at the feet of the gods. No one who has watched for the coming of that shaft of sunlight can doubt that it was a calculated effect, and that the excavation was directed at one especial angle in order to produce it. In this way Ra, to whom the temple was dedicated, may be said to have entered in daily, and by a direct manifestation of his presence to have approved the sacrifices of his worshippers. I need scarcely say that we did not see half the wall sculptures or even half the chambers that first afternoon at Abu Simbel. We rambled to and fro, lost in wonder, and content to wonder, like rustics at a fair. We had, however, ample time to come again and again and learn it all by heart. The writer went in constantly, and at all hours, but most frequently at the end of the day's sketching, when the rest were walking or boating in the cool of the late afternoon. It is a wonderful place to be in alone, a place in which the very darkness and silence are old, and in which time himself seems to have fallen asleep. 
wandering to and fro among these sculptured halls, like a shade among shadows, one seems to have left the world behind, to have done with the teachings of the present, to belong one's self to the past. The very gods assert their ancient influence over those who question them in solitude. Seen in the fast-deepening gloom of evening, they look instinct with supernatural life. There were times when I should scarcely have been surprised to hear them speak, to see them rise from their painted thrones and come down from the walls. There were times when I felt I believed in them. There was something so weird and awful about the place, and it became so much more weird and awful the farther one went in, that I rarely ventured beyond the first hall when quite alone. One afternoon, however, when it was a little earlier, and therefore a little lighter than usual, I went to the very end, and sat at the feet of the gods in the sanctuary. All at once, I cannot tell why, for my thoughts just then were far away, it flashed upon me that a whole mountain hung, ready, perhaps, to cave in above my head. Seized by a sudden panic, such as one feels in dreams, I tried to run, but my feet dragged, and the floor seemed to sink under them. I felt I could not have called for help, though it had been to save my life. It is unnecessary, perhaps, to say that the mountain did not cave in, and that I had my fright for nothing. It would have been a grand way of dying all the same, and a still grander way of being buried. My visits to the great temple were not always so dramatic. I sometimes took Salome, who smoked cigarettes when not on active duty, or held a candle while I sketched patterns of cornices, head-dresses of kings and gods, designs of necklaces and bracelets, heads of captives, and the like. Sometimes we explored the side-chambers. Of these there are eight, pitch dark and excavated at all kinds of angles. Two or three are surrounded by stone benches cut in the rock, and in one the hieroglyphic inscriptions are part cut, part sketched in black and left unfinished. As this temple is entirely the work of Ramesses II, and betrays no sign of having been added to by any of his successors, these evidences of incompleteness would seem to show that the king died before the work was ended. I was always under the impression that there were secret places yet undiscovered in these dark chambers, and Salome and I were always looking for them. At Denderah, at Edfu, at Medinet Habu, at Philae, there have been found crypts in the thickness of the walls and recesses under the pavements, for the safe-keeping of treasure in time of danger. The rock-cut temples must also have had their hiding-places, and those would doubtless take the form of concealed cells in the walls or under the floors of the side-chambers. To come out from these black holes into the twilight of the great hall and see the landscape set, as it were, in the ebon frame of the doorway, was alone worth the journey to Abu Simbel. The sun being at such times in the west, the river, the yellow sand-island, the palms and tamarisks opposite— and the mountains of the eastern desert were all flooded with a glory of light and color to which no pen or pencil could possibly do justice. Not even the mountains of Moab in Helmut Hunt's scapegoat were so warm with rose and gold. Thus our days passed at Abu Simbel, the workers working, the idlers idling, the strangers from the outer world now and then coming and going. The heat on shore was great, especially in the sketching tents, but the north breeze blew steadily every day from about an hour after sunrise till an hour before sunset, and on board the Dahabiyah it was always cool. 
the happy couple took advantage of this good wind to do a good deal of boating, and by judiciously timing their excursions, contrived to use the tail of the day's breeze for their trip out, and the strong arms of four good rowers to bring them back again. In this way they managed to see the little rock-cut temple of Fairegg, which the rest of us unfortunately missed. On another occasion they paid a visit to a certain sheikh who lived at a village about two miles south of Abu Simbel. He was a great man, as Nubian magnates go. His name was Hassan Eben Rashwan el-Kashif, and he was a grandson of that same old Hassan Kashif who was vice-regent of Nubia in the days of Burkhart and Belzoni. He received our happy couple with distinguished hospitality, killed a sheep in their honour, and entertained them for more than three hours. The meal consisted of an endless succession of dishes, all of which, like that bugbear of our childhood, the hated air with variations, went on repeating the same theme under a multitude of disguises, and whether roast, boiled, stewed, or minced, served on skewers, smothered in rice, or drowned in sour milk, were always mouton au fond. We now despaired of ever seeing a crocodile, and but for a trail that our men discovered on the island opposite, we should almost have ceased to believe that there were crocodiles in Egypt. The marks were quite fresh when we went to look at them. The creature had been basking high and dry in the sun, and this was the point at which he had gone down again to the river. The damp sand at the water's edge had taken the mould of his huge fleshy paws, and even of the jointed armour of his tail, though this last impression was somewhat blurred by the final rush with which he had taken to the water. I doubt if Robinson Crusoe, when he saw the famous footprint on the shore, was more excited than we of the Philae at the sight of this genuine and undeniable trail. As for the idle man, he flew at once to arms and made ready for the fray. He caused a shallow grave to be dug for himself a few yards from the spot, then went and lay in it for hours together, morning after morning, under the full blaze of the sun, flat, patient, alert, with his gun ready cocked, and a pall-mall budget up his back. It was not his fault if he narrowly escaped sunstroke, and had his labour for his reward. That crocodile was too clever for him, and took good care never to come back. Our sailors, meanwhile, though well pleased with an occasional holiday, began to find Abu Simbel monotonous. As long as the bagstones stayed, the two crews met every evening to smoke and dance and sing their quaint roundelays together. But when rumours came of the wonderful things already done this winter above Wadi Halfa, rumours that represented the second cataract as a populous solitude of crocodiles, then our faithful consort slipped away one morning before sunrise, and the filet was left companionless. Seeing that the men's time hung heavy on their hands, our painter conceived the idea of setting them to clean the face of the northernmost colossus, still disfigured by the plaster left on it when the great cast was taken by Mr. Hay more than half a century before. This happy thought was promptly carried into effect. A scaffolding of spars and oars was at once improvised, and the men, delighted as children at play, were soon swarming all over the huge head, just as the carvers may have swarmed over it in the days when Ramesses was king. All they had to do was to remove any small lumps that might yet adhere to the surface, and then tint the white patches with coffee. This they did with bits of sponge tied to the end of sticks, but Rais Hassan, as a mark of dignity, had one of the painter's old brushes, of which he was immensely proud. 
It took them three afternoons to complete the job, and we were all sorry when it came to an end. To see Rais Hassan artistically touching up a gigantic nose almost as long as himself, Riscali and the cook-boy, staggering to and fro with relays of coffee, brewed thick and slab for the purpose. Salome perched cross-legged like some complacent imp on the towering rim of the great shent overhead, the rest chattering and skipping about the scaffolding like monkeys, was, I venture to say, a sight more comic than has ever been seen at Abu Simbel before or since. Ramazi's appetite for coffee was prodigious. He consumed I know not how many gallons a day. Our cook stood aghast at the demand made upon his stores. Never before had he been called upon to provide for a guest whose mouth measured three feet and a half in width. Still, the result justified the expenditure. The coffee proved a capital match for the sandstone, and though it was not possible wholly to restore the uniformity of the original surface, we at least succeeded in obliterating those ghastly splotches, which for so many years have marred this beautiful face as with the unsightliness of leprosy. What with boating, fishing, lying in wait for crocodiles, cleaning the colossus, and filling reams of thin letter-paper to friends at home, we got through the first week quickly enough, the painter and the writer working hard, meanwhile, in their respective ways, the painter on his big canvas in front of the temple, the writer shifting her little tent as she listed. Now, although the most delightful occupation in life is undoubtedly sketching, it must be admitted that the sketcher at Abu Simbel works under difficulties. Foremost among these comes the difficulty of position. The great temple stands within about twenty-five yards of the brink of the bank, and the lesser temple within as many feet, so that to get far enough from one subject is simply impossible. The present writer sketched the small temple from the deck of the Dahabiyah, there being no point of view obtainable on shore. Next comes the difficulty of color. Everything, except the sky and the river, is yellow. Yellow, that is to say, with a difference, yellow ranging through every gradation of orange, maize, apricot, gold, and buff. The mountains are sandstone, the temples are sandstone, the sand slope is powdered sandstone from the sandstone desert. In all these objects the scale of color is necessarily the same. Even the shadows, glowing with reflected light, give back tempered repetitions of the dominant hue. Hence it follows that he who strives, however humbly, to reproduce the facts of the scene before him is compelled, bon gré, mal gré, to execute what some young painters would nowadays call a symphony in yellow. Lastly, there are the minor inconveniences of sun, sand, wind, and flies. The whole place radiates heat, and seems almost to radiate light. The glare from above and the glare from below are alike intolerable. Dazzled, blinded, unable even to look at his subject without the aid of smoke-colored glasses, the sketcher whose tent is pitched upon the sand-slope over against the great temple enjoys a foretaste of cremation. When the wind blows from the north, which at this time of the year is almost always, the heat is perhaps less distressing, but the sand is maddening. It fills your hair, your eyes, your water-bottles, silts up your colour-box, dries into your skies, and reduces your Chinese white to a gritty paste the colour of salad-dressing. As for the flies, they have a morbid appetite for water-colours. 
They follow your wet brush along the paper, leave their legs in the yellow ochre, and plunge with avidity into every little pool of cobalt as it is mixed ready for use. Nothing disagrees with them, nothing poisons them, not even olive green. It was a delightful time, however, delightful alike for those who worked and those who rested, and these small troubles counted for nothing in the scale. Yet it was pleasant, all the same, to break away for a day or two, and be off for Wadi Halfa. End of section 48